As America and the people of Iraq are challenged to make sense of the decade that followed the U.S. invasion of that country, tens of thousands of people who witnessed the violence and the cauldron of change that accompanied the fall of Saddam Hussein are not here to testify. In their eyes is a story of sacrifice, of lives wasted, of children never permitted to grow up. Imagine telling the story of the war in Iraq from the perspective of one young Iraqi who cared deeply about his country and who also worked on the front lines as an Arabic interpreter. His eyes with the dual understanding of the danger at the edge of the conflict and the vulnerable Iraqis, his friends and neighbors, he wanted to protect. The story of the Iraq war in one young man, Muhammad, nicknamed Roy by the soldiers he worked for. I saw what looked like a young boy, a Iraqi boy, get out of one of the trucks. And I actually looked over at one of my scout team leaders and said, who, who let the 12-year-old out with us and, and he laughed and he said that's Roy the new interpreter sir and I said does his mom know it's past his bedtime and that moment began an unforgettable relationship between former U.S. Army Captain Blake Hall and this young man he would call Roy someone who in their first conversation deepened Blake's own sense of mission about what he was doing in Iraq I went over and and talked to Roy and I didn't want to offend him uh, but I just asked him you know why he wanted to serve with the Americans and he told me that he went to uh, school in Baghdad, and one day the jihadists came to his school, and they said, you're not students anymore. Put away your books. Uh, two of his friends you know, basically told them, leave us alone, and because of their resistance, they executed them by uh, beheading them. Young Muhammad's sense of mission over wanting to do something to help his country stayed with our storyteller, Captain Blake Hall. And as you may have guessed, Muhammad Roy did not survive the war. But his relationship with his American unit has lived on, as you'll learn this hour, how a family was saved by the soldiers who ultimately couldn't protect this one young interpreter. It is a story that perhaps comes closest to defining what the war has meant to the people who fought it and the Iraqis whose lives are changed forever. So, um, and it's funny, even now with his family, we still call him Roy. Uh, we had to assign a pseudonym to him because uh, his family lived in Baghdad. And uh, you can imagine the danger that's associated with targeting some of these senior-level insurgents who are living uh, in the city, particularly when there's a civil war going on. Uh, if they recognized Roy, if they recognized his face, if they heard his name, any of those pieces of information could ultimately be used to find out his true identity. And if they did, you know, usually they would execute him uh, and his entire family because of their association with American forces. And uh, the casualty rates, it's an untold story, but the casualty rates among interpreters have been horrific. Uh, in Mosul, the unit that had, I think, 21 or 22 interpreters before us, when we arrived there 18 months later, it looked like 19 of the, uh, the 21 interpreters in that unit had been killed because they left the base, you know, to visit their families, and, and they, were, they were tracked. Ibrahim, why would your cousin do something that, as Blake describes it there, was just extraordinarily reckless at the time? I mean, put you in such danger. Well, uh, at the time, uh, it was the war going on, and it was a lot of insurgency all over the neighborhood, and the jihadis, they were, like, killing innocent people. Like, one of the time we had our neighbor, he was with us in the morning. We were talking to him, and... After like five minutes, we went inside the house. We got out and we saw our neighbor been shot in the head like three times. 
so at the time we just decided like you know what we we have to do something to stop these people from killing innocent people and doing what they're doing in Iraq and making all the mess so Blake what kinds of operations would you take Roy on what what sorts of how close was he in helping you assess the situation in some of these dangerous uh, conditions? Uh, Roy participated in some of the most sensitive operations that the United States military conducted uh, in Iraq, particularly during 2006 and 2007. Uh, we were capturing senior al-Qaeda commanders who were associated with the vehicle bomb networks that were responsible for the deaths of literally tens of thousands of people. Uh, one of those networks uh, that we took down over the last two weeks had been killing over a thousand civilians per month for at least 15 months. And without Roy's ability to communicate, uh, there is no way that we would have been able to capture those targets, one, and then do the, the things that we needed to do in terms of tactical questioning uh, for follow on raids. Uh, there were uh, several American soldiers who were kidnapped in May of uh, 2007, and Roy was directly responsible. He was the first uh, Iraqi to interrogate some of those kidnappers, you know, and there, there's a scene, I remember he was actually on the phone with one of the kidnappers, and I was looking around at all my guys, you know, sniper trained, ranger tabbed, pathfinder. Uh, not one of us could do what he did because we didn't have the cultural understanding, we didn't have the ability to speak the language, and he just did a phenomenal job. I could not have done my job without him. Captain Hall, I I don't know if you just roll back the tape of what you just said. You described Roy as having been critical to some of the most sensitive operations during the entire Iraq operation. Is that to say that he's a hero? Absolutely he's a hero. I think how much more to be a hero when every day because of your service, your family's in danger, and you brave not only the, the acute threats to your life, but you also do that in an environment where you don't know when you're going to go home. You don't know when the war is going to be over. You know, for us, we knew 15 months and we get to go back home. We get to live our lives. We're going to be in our mid-20s again. For Roy, he never had that. You know, even if he was able to save himself, his family would always be in danger because of his service, because mm-hmm. of the Civil War that consumed his country. And I think that you know, the definition of a hero is someone who risks himself to protect other people. Roy did that every day, and he did that for a country that uh, he had no, no obligation to, uh, to feel an affinity for, and, and yet he believed in standing up for his friends and for his country, and, and I think there's nothing more heroic than that. Do you know what happened to, uh, to Roy, to Mohammed, uh, Captain Hall? Yeah, um, it was pretty terrible. I, I had the, the visa paperwork uh, ready. You, you had to serve 12 months with the Americans to be eligible to, to get a visa to come to America. And when we left him behind in September, uh, I felt so guilty. But I made him a promise. I said, at 12 months, you will have a general officer's signature and you'll have a visa packet that endorses your application to come to the United States. And uh, when that 12-month mark hit, um, at the beginning of 2008, I'd sent a uh, an email to the platoon leader, and a few days went by. I didn't hear anything, so I sent another note, and then that afternoon I checked my email, and uh, I got a, a note from the platoon leader, and it said, Blake, I thought that you knew, but um, several days ago, one, one of my um, uh, sniper teams went into a house that was rigged to explode. Um, I lost six of my guys 
and Roy. Um, and uh, the note ended with, uh, you know, I'm so sorry. And I, I just, I mean, I just remember just feeling so numb and so guilty that I wasn't able to protect him. Um, and so, you know, that, that was one of the most uh, heartbreaking moments, I think, of, of the tour for me. And I know that uh, for, for the scout team leader who took care of him, Justin Sanford, he, um, we both took it really hard when we lost him. Ibrahim, why is it that you are alive and uh, Roy is no longer with us? Uh, I would say just I got lucky. It was a constantly mission every single day in my life. And likely I I still alive. Even till this day uh, for the family, the neighbors still asking how did Roy die and what happened to him. And we have to make up like story about like Roy death. It, it, it was really hard. When Captain Blake Hall's deployment in Iraq was finished, he moved heaven and earth to get Roy a visa to come to the U.S. Weeks before he was eligible, though, Muhammad died in combat. Following his death, Captain Hall took as his responsibility to get Muhammad's family over to the States, including Roy's cousin Ibrahim, who also worked as a translator during the war. With some frustration in his voice, Captain Hall explains that in his mission to get Roy's family out of danger, the chief obstacle in his way was the U.S. government. You've got letters from colonels all the way down through captains testifying um, that this family should be allowed to come into the United States. You know that this family is living in, in danger because of his service. And yet, despite that imminent threat, despite legislation that Congress passed, um, they allocated up to 5,000 special immigration visas every year. For some reason, when it comes to execution of that program, I don't think in any year since we've allocated those visas, we've accepted more than 3,000. And so you've got all these slots going unfilled, and each one of those slots represents an interpreter who risked his life to serve with American forces and his family. And ultimately, you know, the sad thing is it took us uh, the better part of, of two years in order to get Roy's family uh, safely to San Diego. And it required uh, Senator Cardin's office, um, Congressman Jane Eshoo's office, calling the FBI on our behalf. It required, uh, I wrote two op-eds for the Washington Post. And despite all of that, you know, external pressure and people who are, rel- you know, relatively senior ranks in the military vouching for this family, um, we still couldn't get them over to America in a timely manner. And mm-hmm. I think we were lucky, but what if they'd been targeted before we were able to bring them to safety? You know, what would that say about us as a country, that you risk your life for us when we need you, when, when our combat forces need the capability that you have, but as soon as we don't need you and we leave, we're going to let you deal with the consequences of what it means to have served mm-hmm. with the American military. Ibrahim, why don't you describe for us what it is that Blake Hall has done for your family? Uh, Blake, Blake, he done a lot for the family. Even till this day, uh, Roy's mom, she can't describe like how happy and appreciated she have a person like Blake Hall. He's done a lot. He called the family. He tried to do his best. And after all, he brought the family to the United States and the family now, like they're living peacefully in, in San Diego and they're good. They don't have to be living in fear like what they had before. 
Ibrahim, do you feel safe now? I, I noticed that you don't necessarily want to use your full name in speaking to us, but uh, do you feel safe from all the danger that you've been in? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, I'm in the United States right now. I mean, a point I want to bring up to you, like, it's really hard for our family to get here, too. My mom, which is, I applied for the visa. It's been three years right now, and she's still there by herself. I was the main support for my mom overseas, and I have contacted the embassy. I have done everything. There is even a recommendation from the special forces I have sent to the embassy and all what they tell me is like, oh, we're still looking, waiting for the backup check. I mean, I, I would say the family, they have a big part of what we have done and completed the mission overseas in Iraq. Well, let's put that question to Captain Hall. I mean, there were so many intractable problems in Iraq, and, and we, we experienced them as journalists, as Americans mm-hmm. uh, hearing the news out of Iraq. You, of course, experienced them. on the ground. Uh, It seems to me the bringing of Roy to the United States and the recognition of his family's service and the recognition of the translators and interpreters service is not a hard problem. It's an easy problem. Why do you think 10 years after the war in Iraq began, America gets these easy things wrong? Well, I think ultimately when you have a number of different organizations involved, there's an accountability problem. Because if something goes wrong, if you let in the wrong uh, immigrant, then you can get burned, but there's no incentive for somebody to process the packets. And so what happens is institutional fear of approving the wrong packet prevents us from doing the right thing. And, you know, one of the things that really gummed up the process was uh, several years ago, they approved um, a packet for two Iraqis. Um, They went to Kentucky. They had never served with American forces. There was no vetting done by any DOD personnel. And those two Iraqis were affiliated with al-Qaeda. And mm. they were launching a plot to bomb um, some facility. And, you know, the FBI prevented that from happening. But because of those two Iraqis who had never served with American forces, but yet somehow leapfrogged this long line of deserving and, and vetted Iraqis, that basically... Um, prompted the government to say, hey, we need to stop all these applications and run the background checks on everybody who's in the pipeline to make sure that we're letting in the right folks. Slowed everything down. All right. Right. But to my mind, it's it's incredibly unfair. How how could you ever process visas for two Iraqis who didn't serve with Americans when you've got thousands in line waiting who did? Well, to both of you, I want to ask um, a similar question, thinking about the 10 years that have passed since uh, the U.S. invaded Iraq. Um, Blake Hall, is this war over for you? It it feels to me like you're still carrying this family on your back. Yeah, I think anytime you start a war or you disrupt people's lives, you bear responsibility for that. We bear responsibility for it as a country. Um, you know, unfortunately those decisions were, uh, were above my pay grade, but what I can control is I can control, uh, the men that I was responsible for and the things that happened to them. there I have influence. And so, you know, I think when we look back on, on what Iraq means and what we accomplished, I don't know that we've created a political end state that is more in the interest of the United States of America. That bothers me as a soldier uh, because I fought very hard to win a war that ultimately, I don't know, uh, had that much purpose. But as an individual, 
um, the thing that I can control in my life is making sure that my country uh, is responsible for the impacts that it had on the men that I led. And that's where, you know, for the rest of my life, whether it's talking to uh, my guys on a weekly basis about uh, things that they're struggling with to situations like making sure that Roy's family, you know, not only gets here but successfully reintegrates that's my burden, and, and I will carry that load because uh, that's my job as a former officer of the United States military. Ibrahim, if your cousin Mohammed Roy was uh, with us, what do you think he'd say about what happened when the U.S. invaded Iraq, what it was all for, and what it meant for him? I mean, Roy, he was like a really brave kid, and I think he would say, like, if he had to go over and do the mission all over again, he would do it again. He's always been there to save people and to support the people over there in Iraq and the U.S. troops. I don't know. It's a hard question. It's a hard question. A lot of hard questions. Well, Ibrahim and uh, Blake Hall, thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. Thank you. Appreciate it, John. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here and maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts.